You are listening to Odyssey, the podcast, history's other most awesome epic. This is episode number 10 in the series. Today's episode is titled Nausicaa. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and you are now listening to episode number 10 of Odyssey the Podcast, an episode that I've decided to title Nausicaa. Now, I've really been looking forward to telling you this particular story. It's going to be an awful lot of fun, but before we dive into it, I think maybe a quick two-minute reorientation is called for at this stage. Because we have spent the last couple of episodes of Odyssey the Podcast in what's called the Telemachy, or the story of Athena's rescue mission to young Telemachus. So if you can recall back a couple of episodes, that episode opened with a council of the god on Mount Olympus, where Zeus had decided it was time for Odysseus to be freed from the seven-year-long embrace of the goddess Calypso. And he had sent off Hermes with his magical sandals down to the island of Aegea and instructed Calypso that you've got to let your boy toy go now. So, Odysseus, when we left the last episode, had escaped from Calypso's tender charms, built himself a raft, and was sailing towards home. But that's when the god Poseidon had seen him, and the god Poseidon, who hated Odysseus for all sorts of reasons, but namely for what Odysseus had done to his son Polythemus, the god Poseidon decided to make Odysseus's homecoming journey a little bit more hellish than it already was. So Poseidon had sent a storm. It had lasted three days and three nights, and finally, 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 only after the intervention of Zeus and Athena, had Poseidon relented and allowed Odysseus to land on the island of the Phaeacians. And that's where we are going to pick him up right now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to notice inside of this episode that Athena makes frequent appearances, which is kind of remarkable because at the same time that Athena is, well, helping Odysseus in the land of the Phaeacians, she is, inside of the structure of Homer's Odyssey, also off on Ithaca, helping young Telemachus to grow up and grow a pair, if you will. So all we can assume, really, in this episode is that Athena is using her particularly magical golden sandals and logging some serious air miles, zipping back and forth between the land of the Phaeacians and Ithaca. But, be that as it may, our story concerns Odysseus. And it opens with our boy Odysseus washed ashore on the land of the Phaeacians. Now, a quick perspective. We know because we know the omniscient narrator Homer has told us that Odysseus is safe. He is on a land where he is going to receive absolutely first-rate, top-quality Xenia. But Odysseus himself has absolutely no such prior knowledge. And so, given that his batting average so far on strange and unfamiliar lands has been about 50% safe, Odysseus, when he lands on this island, is going to have to work in the assumption that the island is dangerous. But his first priority, washed ashore, 
is actually simply going to be to make it through the night alive. And here's why. Folks, Homer tells us that, well, his boy Odysseus is actually in some seriously bad shape. I'm going to quote. The sea had broken him. His swollen body gushed brine from mouth to nostrils. There he lay, winded and silent, hardly fit to move. A terrible exhaustion overcame him. When he could breathe and think again, he crawled from the sea onto the land and crouched beside the reeds, and then bent down to kiss the life-giving earth. So, immediate survival was going to be an issue. Odysseus had washed up on the shore of this particular land, naked. All of his clothes had been washed off during the three days and three nights of Poseidon's storm. And now he was soaking wet, physically exhausted, and he hadn't had a single thing to eat in the last three days. So, as Odysseus considered his options with what was left of his sentient abilities, he realized that there was absolutely no point having survived the shipwreck in the storm and then dying of hypothermia in the Mediterranean night air. And so he hiked off of the beach into the forest and found himself a sheltered little hollow of thick trees which would protect him a little bit from the wind. And then, like some sort of a burrowing animal, Odysseus crawled down into the very bottom of that burrow and heaped huge piles of dry, dead leaves over top of his freezing, starving form, essentially turning himself into, well, in Homer's words, I'll quote, as someone buries a glowing log under a heap of ashes and thus keeps a fire alive, so just did Odysseus cover himself with dry leaves. Well, it worked. The dry leaves held in the final little bit of Odysseus's gradually decreasing body heat and soon he was falling asleep. Athena, overwatching the man, poured sleep into his eyes. His lids grew heavy and in an instant, he was released from all pain. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to leave Odysseus there, sound asleep, burrowed up like some sort of an animal under those leaves, and meanwhile follow Athena, the goddess of wisdom's deliberations. Because Athena, the moment that she had her boy safely asleep, set to work with solving a problem which she knew Odysseus was going to face in the morning. Athena knew that the next day Odysseus was going to wake up and he was going to be in bad need of Xenia. The man was naked, the man was cold, the man was hungry, and the man was exhausted. Now, the standard protocol in a situation like this for a stranger arriving on a land would have been for Odysseus to, in the morning, get up, return to the beach, and then from that beach try to find some sort of a road or a path and hike himself into town. And then Odysseus, being royalty, would have arrived at the royal palace in the town and begged Xenia. But, given Odysseus's current condition, the goddess of practical wisdom realized that, first of all, the odds of Odysseus having the physical strength of getting out of the forest and finding his way into the town, and then next, the odds of receiving appropriate Xenia at a royal palace if he even found it, well, the odds of those two things happening were, in Athena's estimate, pretty well slim to none. 
Athena recognized that at the moment her boy Odysseus resembled a beggar, and a beggar particularly down on his luck for that matter, so the possibility of Odysseus receiving royal Xenia was pretty well zero. He would be lucky, Athena knew, to find some slave's hovel where he'd be provided with a scrap of bread and maybe some sort of an old greasy rag to cover his currently exposed manly parts. So, how to solve the problem? Well, Athena considered her options for a few moments, and then the goddess of practical wisdom made a decision. Instead of sending her boy Odysseus into the town, she would send a representative of the town to her boy Odysseus. And specifically, what Athena decided to do was to prompt some member of the Phaeacian royal family to make a decision the next morning to leave the royal palace and to hike down to the seashore and there discover Odysseus. And at that point, Athena recognized Odysseus, her boy, could hike out from the forest and make his speech requesting Xenia, something along the lines of, uh, excuse me, and, uh, well, contrary to how I appear at the moment, I am actually part of the 1%, uh, just like you are. So I am rather hoping for some nobility-class Xenia, if you please. So that was Athena's plan. Then it was just a matter of choosing the member of the royal family to prompt through some deific prompting to head in the morning down to the beach and discover Odysseus. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the obvious choices for Athena to consider would have been the king of the Phaeacians, a man named Alcinous, or one of his numerous adult sons. But Athena, aside from being the goddess of practical wisdom, was also the goddess of let's make things interesting for the plot. So Athena decided that the representative of the royal family that she would send down to the beach to meet her half-starved and totally naked boy Odysseus would not be the king, would not be the king's sons, but rather King Alcinous's 15-year-old teenage daughter, a girl named Nausicaa. And that, the goddess of the twinkling eyes decided, that will make things interesting for all of us. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Athena flew to the Phaeacian palace and paid a visit to the girl Nausicaa. Now, of course, remember, this was the middle of the night, so Nausicaa was sound asleep in her room. Let me tell you her story. Nausicaa, as I told you, was the only daughter of King Alcinous and Queen Ariete of the land of the Phaeacians. At the moment our story opens, Nausicaa was about 15 years old. And in many respects, the Nausicaa that we meet, that Homer presents us with, is a very typical teenage girl. In some respects, even a 21st century teenage girl. How do I know? Because the first time we meet her, Homer describes the girl's room. It is, in his words, absolutely littered with discarded clothing. Quote, lying there in dirty heaps on the floor. And further, Homer informs us, Nausicaa, who is sound asleep and dreaming, is dreaming about boys. But ladies and gentlemen, that's where the 21st century similarities between Nausicaa and our teenage girls come to a bit of an end. 
Because Nausicaa was not dreaming about boys in that abstract sense of, oh, I wonder who will invite me to the junior prom. Or, I wonder if the cute boy at McDonald's might ask me out after his shift finishes. Rather, 15-year-old Nausicaa, a Bronze Age girl, was lying in her bed dreaming about her impending wedding. Now, so far, of course, her father, the king, who would be making Nausicaa's choice of husband on her behalf, while King Alcinous had not determined which of the local men would marry his daughter, but Nausicaa did know that sometime in the next while, one of the eligible young bachelors of the island, all men, incidentally, about 30 years old, would be selected to marry 15-year-old Nausicaa. Apparently, a whole host of local men were eager and lined up. But apparently, Nausicaa had absolutely no interest in any of them. But I digress. Back to our story. So Athena arrived in the middle of the night with a plan to somehow prompt Nausicaa in the morning to want to head down to the seashore at the point where a river flowed into it, precisely where her boy Odysseus was sound asleep and going to be needing some royalty-class zinnia in the morning. So, Athena decided to put a dream into Nausicaa's little head. A dream not about boys, but about what Nausicaa desperately wanted to do in the morning more than anything else in the world. And the dream involved doing the household laundry. So in that respect, Nausicaa was not a typical teenage girl. So here's what happened. Nausicaa woke up in the morning, she presented herself to her mom and dad, and she announced that she had her heart set that day on doing the household laundry. And her parents, no doubt in a mixture of shock, bafflement, and, well, barely concealed delight, immediately acceded to their daughter's rather improbable request. So Nausicaa got to work. Now, ladies and gentlemen, doing the laundry in the Bronze Age was a little wee bit different than it might be in the 21st century. You see, Nausicaa did not have the modern-day conveniences of washing machines, dryers, or powerful detergents to help her out with her task. So what was going to have to be done is the dirty laundry would be brought down to the river that flowed into the Mediterranean Sea, and then the laundry would be thrown into the riverbed where it would be trod on, up on down, by feet for a little while, sort of creating an agitation-type washing machine action, if you will, and then it would be rinsed and laid out on the hot cobblestone shores of the Mediterranean to do its drying inside of the hot sun. So, there was an awful lot of work involved in doing the laundry. It was a full day's activity, particularly if you had a large royal household. Now, I told you that Nausicaa did not have the modern-day conveniences of washers, dryers, and detergents, but let's be fair, the poor girl did have some Bronze Age conveniences not open to most of us today. Nausicaa had slaves. And it would be the slaves doing all of the real work of the laundry for her. And so, as Nausicaa prepared for her big laundry day, she summoned a sizable party of her own personal household female slaves. They loaded all of the household laundry onto an oxen-hauled cart. A picnic basket was prepared. They were going to be down by the beach all day. 
and soon the washing party had made its way down to the place where the river flowed into the sea. Precisely the place, incidentally, where our boy Odysseus was currently still sound asleep under that huge pile of dried leaves. Well, eventually the hard work of the laundry was done. The garments had been washed, they had been trodden, they had been rinsed, and now they had all been spread out on the seaside's cobblestone shore waiting to dry. But ladies and gentlemen, that was going to take a few hours even in the hot sun. So the girls of the laundry party decided to have a swim in the river, to pull out their picnic lunch, and once they were fully satisfied and refreshed, the girls decided to while away part of the afternoon playing some sort of a game of ball. We don't know what sort of a ball it was. We don't know if there was other equipment involved. Homer doesn't explain. All we know is that apparently the ladies were having a fine old time. And that, folks, is when Athena, the goddess of wisdom, decided it was her time to step into the game of ball with a little bit of deus ex machina prompting along of Athena's plans to introduce a member of the royal family to her boy Odysseus. So here's what Athena did. She waited until Nausicaa, who apparently was pretty expert at this game of ball they were playing, to throw a pass to one of the slave girls. And then Athena made sure, through some deific sleight of hand, I suppose, that the slave girl missed the catch. Well, the ball went flying over the slave girl's outstretched arms, and it landed in the river where it immediately sunk to the bottom. Well, that prompted, just as Athena hoped it would, a whole host of teenage girls laughing, yelling, cheering, giggling, and yelling to each other plans about how the ball might be retrieved. And the noise was loud enough that, again, just as Athena had calculated, it woke up her boy, Odysseus. So, Odysseus burrowed down in those leaves and having a wonderful night's sleep, suddenly was jolted awake by the sound of teenage girls, screaming, laughing, cheering, and giggling. And almost immediately, our boy Odysseus realized that he had a bit of a problem on his hands. He needed to attract the girls' attention But then, once the girls had actually seen him, he needed them to stay still on that beach long enough and not panic, such that he had time to beg appropriate Zinnia from them. And Odysseus knew that what he could not risk under any circumstances at all was that when he stepped out of the forest, he chased those girls away. Because if they rushed back into town with reports that they had just been accosted by some mud-caked, wild-eyed, and half-starred, naked old man who had stumbled out of the forest and into their laundry, well, things would not go very well for our boy Odysseus. So, lying in the pile of dry leaves, Odysseus paused for a moment to consider his options how to get what he needed without chasing away the girls first. So first he considered, well, what we might here call the traditional option, and I'm going to have to provide us with a short digression to explain it, folks. Inside of Homer's Bronze Age culture, and there's evidence of this throughout the Iliad and throughout the Odyssey, 
If you were really in dire straits, if you were a suppliant who was desperately, desperately down on your luck, then here's what you would do in a situation like this. You would identify the person whose help you needed. Normally, it would be a person in position of power over you who could offer you some sort of help. And then what you would do is you would approach the person quickly, drop to your knees directly in front of that individual, and before they could move, wrap your arms firmly around that individual's waist. Then, you would look up to the person and beg for the help that you needed. But allow me to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, as Homer tells us, Odysseus at this particular point in time was, quote, naked, all caked to assault, and looking a dreadful sight. So it no doubt occurred to Odysseus that supplication via this traditional drop to your knees and wrap your arms around the waist of the person whose help you required might not, in the current circumstance, be the most diplomatic or, well, efficacious of options. And all I can ask you to do, folks, is imagine, if you can, that you were a teenage girl yourself. So if you'll play this little imagination game with me, you and your group of teenage girl friends are hanging out on the beach. You're having a fine old time. You think you're on your own. You're relaxed. You're swimming. Everything's going along well. And then suddenly, out of the blue, some 50-year-old hairy naked guy covered in cuts and bruises who clearly hasn't had a shave or a bath in a month steps onto your beach, grabs you around the waist, drops to his knees, looks up into your eyes and says, Hospitality, please. And even in the Bronze Age, where this sort of supplication was more common and familiar, Odysseus was wise enough or clever enough to recognize that in this particular circumstance, it might not work so well. In Homer's words, I quote, Odysseus pondered whether to fall at her feet and clasp her knees as a suppliant, but considered that the girl might be alarmed at being touched. And folks, as far as I'm concerned, Homer's dry phrasing there, the girl might be alarmed, is one of the best moments of understated humor in the entire Odyssey. But back to the story. Odysseus, still pondering his options under that pile of leaves, decided that instead of the straightforward supplication approach, he might be better off to try some other approach to getting the help that he needed from the girls on the beach. So here's what he did. He stood up in the leaves, recognized that he was going to need something to cover his dangling manly bits, so snapped off the leafy branch of a tree and then holding that branch delicately and genteelly in front of said bits, Odysseus stepped out of the forest and onto the beach. Well, the girls saw him and all of the slave girls in the party immediately and quite sensibly scattered. These were slave girls and the only reason that they were on the island of the Phaeacians is that at some stage in their life, themselves or their mothers had been on a beach someplace when some 
raiding, pirating party had suddenly shown up on shore, summarily captured the girls, possibly raped the girls, and then thrown them onto boats and sold them at some future date to the Phaiakians. So when they saw some strange man suddenly step onto their beach, well, those slave girls had hardwired into their experiential DNA the sensible response. Put as much distance between yourself and the strange man as possible. But Homer tells us that one of the girls stood her ground and stayed stock still. And of course, that was the princess Nausicaa, who did not have that hard, bitter experience wired into her princess's DNA. Homer tells us that, quote, Nausicaa stayed still. Athena made her legs stop trembling and gave the princess courage in her heart. And folks, immediately that told Odysseus who the leader of the group was. And Odysseus then went to work, seeking the Xenia he required, not through the standard supplication methodology, but rather from a safe distance, using Odysseus's finest and most refined skill set. Odysseus launched into a speech. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is what Odysseus said. My lady, please wait. Are you divine or are you human? If you are some great goddess from the sky, you look like Zeus's daughter Artemis. You are as tall and as beautiful as she. But if you do live on earth, if you are human, well, I have never seen anyone like you. Never, no one. That man will be the luckiest by far who gets to take you home as his bride. I remember traveling once to Delos. I was on my way to war. My troops, they marched with me. Beside Apollo's altar, there sprang a sapling. I gazed at it and I marveled. I had never seen so magical a tree. My lady, you transfix me in that very same way. I, I, I am in awe of you, afraid to touch your knees. But I am desperate. My lady, battered and wrecked, I come to you. You first. I know no one else in this entire country. So, if you will, show me the town and give me some rags to wear if you brought any clothes with you when you came here today. Now, folks, it is a pretty long speech, I will admit that, but in Homer's words, it's a bit of calculated flattery, and in the views of most scholars and critics who examine this speech, it's actually a minor masterpiece of Odysseus's rhetorical skills at their very finest. So what we really need to do is take a few moments to deconstruct what Odysseus has attempted to do and what he succeeded in doing in this particular speech. So let's go through it in detail. First off, Odysseus's top priority when he started to talk to Nausicaa was to assure the girl that she was safe. That he, Odysseus, had absolutely no predatorial sexual interests in her. So how did he do that? Well, he did it in a really genius way. 
Odysseus compared the princess Nausicaa to the goddess Artemis. So here's what you need to know about Artemis, folks. Artemis was, well, the most fiercely independent, self-sufficient, and self-assured female deity inside of the entire Olympian pantheon. She was a huntress, she was an expert with a bow and arrow, and if you messed with Artemis, particularly if you were a human man who messed with Artemis, well, the ancient Bronze Age world was full of cautionary tales of men who had got onto Artemis' wrong side, and in all of those tales, ladies and gentlemen, the men had died particularly horrific deaths. And so Odysseus, in comparing Nausicaa to the goddess Artemis, was very subtly reassuring the 15-year-old teenage girl that she, and not the strange man in front of her, was actually the person in control of the current situation. And further, Odysseus was acknowledging that since he saw her as Artemis, there was absolutely no way in the world that he was going to make any form of an inappropriate sexual advance towards her. So next off, well, the speech, of course, contained a little wee bit of calculated flattery and possibly are you a goddess is a reasonably safe opening gambit with any teenage girl in any particular century. But Odysseus then went on to some practical flattery too, suggesting that that man will be luckiest by far who gets to take you home as his bride. Third off, well, the speech offered Odysseus's resume essentially documenting a bit about his travels, his military leadership, his pious devotion at temples to the gods, and finally his artistic or aesthetic sensibilities. And all of that, of course, was simply designed to impress upon Nausicaa that he, Odysseus, was a member of royalty. Or in other words, my current grooming and lack of wardrobe to the contrary, you should be aware, young lady, that you are in the presence of a cultured, a worldly, and a sophisticated man, a man of your own rank and social station. And finally, of course, the speech contained a rather playfully disarming acknowledgement of Odysseus's rather awkward lack of clothing at the moment, and that leafy branch he was still carefully holding in front of his manly bits. And folks, you will recall that Odysseus, with a bit of a wink in his eye, standing on a cobblestone beach, spread out with an entire household's work of clean laundry, had asked Nausicaa if you have some rags that I might wear if you brought any clothes when you came to the beach here today. So, that was Odysseus's highly calculated speech. And now the question is, would the speech work? Would Nausicaa provide the hospitality, the Xenia, and the help that the stranger Odysseus so desperately needed? Well, Nausicaa stood there a moment. She considered the stranger's words, and then the princess replied. Well, stranger, your manners are proof that you are neither a man of low birth or a fool. And since you have come to our country, you shall not lack clothing or anything else that you might need. I will show you the way to our city, and I will tell you the name of our people. 
The people here are called Phaeacians, and I am the daughter of the great king of the Phaeacians, King Alcinous. And then, folks, the 15-year-old princess took charge. First of all, she called back her slave girls. They were still at a safe distance, and she chastised them for being so fearful of the strange and naked man. Next, she ordered her slave girls to provide the stranger with food and drink. It was obvious to Nausicaa that that was the man's most immediate needs. He looked as though he was half starved to death. And then finally, she ordered her slave girls to bring the man down to the river and give him a good scrubbing. Because, Lord knows, even at this distance, it was obvious that the man needed a bath in the absolutely worst of ways. And now, folks, a bit of an aside here on that ordering the slave girls to bring the man down to the river for a good scrubbing. In our own particular century, we might consider it a little bit strange or even creepy, the concept of a bunch of 15-year-old girls washing a 50-year-old man. But back inside of the Bronze Age of this story, that sort of thing happened all of the time in the very best of all royal palaces. But Odysseus still quite conscious of the optics and the unspoken overtones on this particular beach. Well, Odysseus graciously declined the help of assistance with his bath. Here's what he said. Now, girls, wait at a distance here, so that I can wash my grimy back and rub myself with oil. It has been quite a while since I have had a bath. Please let me wash in private. I am shy of being naked with you, pretty girls with lovely hair. And so Odysseus proceeded down to the riverside and completed his ablutions on his own. But ladies and gentlemen, then something rather interesting happened. Following Odysseus's bath, when he stepped out of the river, when he dried his body, then when he richly oiled his body, and finally when he dressed himself in some of the robes and the cloak that Nausicaa's slaves had provided to him. Well, then Athena arrived, and Athena, assessing her 50-year-old favorite hero, decided that possibly she might help Odysseus a little wee bit with a deific makeover, if you will. So in Homer's words, here's what Athena did. I quote, As when the blacksmith god Hephaestus pours gold onto silver, making objects even more beautiful. Just so Athena poured attractiveness across Odysseus's head and his shoulders. She made him look bigger and stronger, and she made his hair grow curling tendrils. His handsomeness was dazzling. So in short, ladies and gentlemen, what Athena did is she gilded, if you will, her boy Odysseus, transforming him from his standard heroic silver into the heroic gold in the looks department. And I can't help but a brief digression here. Because folks, throughout Homer's story, Athena is constantly providing her favorite lead characters with just such deific makeovers. 
Telemachus has already received one, Penelope will receive one, and Odysseus, well, he is going to get quite a few. So my question, and it's a question that Homer never answers to my satisfaction, is this. Once Athena provides the candidate with the deific magical makeover, is the change permanent? Or does the change, well, really wear off a little bit later? Or to put this another way, has our hero, Odysseus, now 50 years old, you will recall, well, has Odysseus now undergone some form of empirical transformation? I, I don't know, a facelift, some plastic surgery, maybe a hair implant, a bit of Botox here and there, possibly some liposuction if the food was too good on Calypso's Island? Or, on the other hand, has the goddess Athena simply cast a temporary glamour over Nausicaa's eyes so that Odysseus, though he really hasn't changed, just looks a whole heck of a lot better to that 15-year-old girl. Now, as I said, Homer frustratingly never explains the metaphysics of deific transformations. So we'll just have to return to the story. Here's what happened. Odysseus, rather like some Greek god, waded out of his bath, and Nausicaa got the shock of her life. Oh my, she whispered to her nearby slave girls. When I first saw him, I thought he was repulsive. But now he appears as resplendent as one of the heavenly gods. I wish I could have a man like him for my husband. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Nausicaa, a very bright, a very precocious, a very clever girl, was also still clearly a teenage girl. Because she lost all thoughtful reflection, all sober thought, and all impulse control. Nausicaa decided right there on the beach that this strange man that she knew absolutely nothing about this total stranger, was the man that she intended to marry. Now, this presented a bit of a problem for Nausicaa, given the particular culture in which she lived. Folks, as you know, marriage decisions inside of Odysseus's culture were decided not by the potential bride, but rather by the father of the bride. So Nausicaa, in spite of whatever feelings she might have had about this strange man waiting out of the bath, well, it would be her dad who made the decision on who the 15-year-old girl would wed. But it was more than that. Folks' single girls were expected, or in fact absolutely required, to be totally modest in the presence of any strange men. Now, most of the time, they were kept away from strange men, and the only men who would ever see a girl like Nausicaa were members of her own immediate family, her father or her older brothers. But if there was a rare circumstance where a princess, say, was brought into contact with a strange man, such as the circumstance happening on the beach right now, then Nausicaa's obligation was to maintain absolutely scrupulous modesty throughout the engagement with the strange man. Because if even a whiff or a scandal or a hint got out that 
Nausicaa had been familiar or forward or, gods forbid, flirtatious with the man, well, it could actually ruin her reputation and her marriage prospects. So Nausicaa, the bright young 15-year-old who had just decided she wanted to marry Odysseus, found herself in a wee little bit of a cultural bind. There was absolutely no way in the world that she was going to let this opportunity to put forward her marriage case slip away because, well, circumstances weren't likely ever going to allow her another opportunity like this. But she knew that she had to find some way of flirting with the strange man such that she could maintain, well, plausible deniability, if you will, should somebody later on report that Nausicaa had been inappropriately flirting with strangers. So, ladies and gentlemen, the 15-year-old princess, she composed herself a speech. A speech that proved that she was as quick-witted, as clever, and as much a master wordsmith as was the stranger standing in front of her. So here is what Nausicaa said. Stranger, you do seem like an intelligent man. So do as I say. As long as we walk through the countryside and the farmland towards the town, you can walk briskly with my slaves behind the wagon following me. But I do not want to be the subject of gossip or of scandal. And there are some very insolent louts inside of the city. And one of the cruder sorts, well, if he saw us together, he might say something like this. Did you see that man with Nausicaa? You know, the tall, good-looking stranger? Where did she pick him up? I bet she will marry him. Maybe some god has dropped from the heavens to answer her prayers and the two of them will live happily ever after. And better for her to find herself a man from out of town, since she does turn up her nose at all of our noblest young men. But then, folks, Nausicaa added the element of plausible deniability to her speech. Stranger, that is the sort of thing they would say, and my reputation would suffer from it. I myself, in fact, would blame a girl who became too intimate with a man before her marriage and who said things that went against her loving parents' rule. And then, folks, finally, and to make sure that nobody in the town saw the two of them together and launched into inappropriate gossip or were still reported that Nausicaa had been seen talking to a stranger, the 15-year-old girl engaged in some sophisticated logistical coordinations, telling Odysseus when he should arrive in the town and under what circumstances. So, stranger, once we arrive at the city, you sit down and wait. I will move on ahead until I reach my father's house in town. And then, once you think that I've had time to arrive, only then should you proceed, step into the town, and ask for directions to the palace yourself. And ladies and gentlemen, that concluded Nausicaa's masterwork of a speech. 
And to summarize the content, she had essentially said the following. I find you attractive. I am currently looking for a husband. And if you are interested and available, well, you will do very nicely so far as I am concerned. And ladies and gentlemen, there was actually one more really cool thing about the speech. And here's what it was. Since Nausicaa's speech, which essentially was a marriage proposition cloaked in a denial that such a proposition had ever been made, well, because Nausicaa had framed her speech in such fashion, if it turned out that Odysseus, the stranger, did not have an interest in marrying the girl, well, Nausicaa had spoken in such a way that Odysseus would not have to embarrass himself or insult her by finding a way to turn the marriage proposition down. Because on the surface of the speech, at least, Nausicaa had asked for no such marriage. Well, the moment of flirtation and the moment of proposition passed, with Nausicaa's offer left hanging delicately and unanswered by Odysseus there in the air. Now, folks, at this point in his story, Homer chooses to move on without answering the big million-dollar question. So was Odysseus interested in marrying the girl? But I think we will stop for a brief moment to explore the possible answers. Now, on the surface, of course, it seems as though the obvious answer would be, well, no, absolutely not. Don't be ridiculous. And we have to remember, of course, that just days earlier, Odysseus had turned down a similar marriage invitation from the goddess Calypso on her island. And if you compare the two, well, the goddess Calypso was worldly, she was wise, she was, well, immortal, and she had offered Odysseus immortality herself. So the idea that Odysseus would now find the flirtations of a 15-year-old teenager more tempting to him than the serious flirtations of an immortal goddess really, really, really stretches credibility. But there is one niggling possibility that we do have to consider here, folks. So think about this. Back 20 years ago, when Odysseus sailed for Troy... He left behind at Ithaca a particularly confident, clever, and even, dare we say, polytropous wife, a 15-year-old girl named Penelope. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here arrives a 15-year-old girl named Nausicaa. Ready, willing, and available, and, as far as we can tell personality-wise, a doppelganger of the Penelope of Odysseus's very own memories. So, was there possibly just a little whiff of temptation when Nausicaa made her flirtatious offer? I mean, if you're Odysseus, why risk going home to an aging wife you haven't seen in 20 years and an uncertain kingdom if you could simply hit reset right here now and marry, well, what we might call... Penelope 2.0. And folks, if you will, let me step outside of the story for a moment and remind you that Homer's Odyssey is a quest story. And in the quest story, it is the task of the hero 
to defeat monsters and to resist temptations on his journey towards home. So that raises an interesting question about the structure of Nausicaa inside of Homer's tale. Is there the possibility that Homer has inserted Nausicaa into the story as just one more femme fatale that our poor, helpless, wandering hero has to overcome before he makes it back to his rightful hearth and home? Put another way, is sweet, delightful, and innocent Nausicaa just another siren, just another Circe, or just another Calypso? but this time wrapped up in a more cunningly disguised and sweetly innocent-looking package. Okay, that's enough of the idle, gossipy speculation. Let's return to what Homer tells us about the story. Because Nausicaa continued with her practical instructions to the stranger. Here's what she said. When you enter the town, eventually you will arrive at the palace. When you do, go through the courtyard and straight on to the great hall. You will find my mother sitting beside the fire. My father has a throne right next to her. Pass him by. Embrace my mother's knees to supplicate. And with that final directions and advice, Nausicaa, in the company of her girl slaves, carried on towards the town. Well, Odysseus, as instructed, hung back until he was quite sure that he and the princess's paths would not overlap once they got into the part of the city where people might talk. Well, eventually, Odysseus decided he had waited long enough. He stood up and he headed towards the town himself. And that's, folks, where Athena, having fun with her disguises once again, decided to help our boy Odysseus out with directions through the rather sizable town. Athena took the form this time of a young girl with twinkling eyes. She stepped out of the crowd inside of the bustling city, and she spoke to Odysseus. Mr. Stranger, I will take you directly to where you want to go. And with that, the goddess, disguised as a quite young girl, cheerfully and ably guided Odysseus through the town directly to the palace. And here's the fun thing, folks. Athena, disguised as that young girl, kept up a non-stop litany of chatter on her way towards the palace with Odysseus, essentially filling him in on Phaeacian history, Phaeacian internal politics, and on the domestic situation inside of the Phaeacian royal family. And it's hard not to imagine that Odysseus, watching this quite precocious, ridiculously bright, twinkling-eyed little girl, did not at least suspect that he was actually in the presence of his favorite patron goddess herself. Well, they arrived right at the outside of the palace. And then the little girl slash Athena offered her final bit of practical advice before vanishing into the mist. When you arrive at the throne room, first greet the queen. Ariete is her name. She is extremely clever and perceptive. The queen has excellent sense, and her influence is so great that even among the men, she 
settles disputes. You need to win her favor. And then, folks, Odysseus entered the Phaeacian palace and arrived at the throne room, where he found Queen Ariete sitting by the fire and her husband, King Alcinous, sitting beside her on the throne, just like Nausicaa and the young girl slash Athena had told him he would. And so Odysseus, following detailed instructions, stepped right up to Queen Ariete, dropped to his knees, and clasped her knees with his hands, begging for hospitality. Queen Ariete, I have had many years of pain and loss. I beg you, and your husband, and all of the fine men who feast here now, may the gods bless you all. Help me, please, to get back home, and quickly. I miss my family. I have been gone so long, it hurts. And ladies and gentlemen, as expected and as anticipated, immediately the Phaeacians provided first-rate textbook Zinnia. The king made his very favorite son vacate his very own chair and offer the chair up to the stranger. Immediately following that, a slave girl arrived with a golden basin, poured water over the stranger's hands, made sure that they were sparkling clean. Then another slave arrived and set up a beautifully polished table. The minute the table was set up, another slave arrived, bringing food and excellent drink. And finally, when that was looked after, the final slave arrived to mix first-class delicious and sweet wine. So, in short, it was setting up to be a pretty comfortable and enjoyable evening inside of the great hall of the Phaeacian royal family. Well, the feasting went on for some time. The king, the queen, their sons, a whole host of the nobility, and very curiously, no signs at all of the princess Nausicaa. But eventually, as the evening whiled away, King Alcinous, keeping a close eye on the comforts of his stranger guest, realized that the stranger guest was beginning to fade. Odysseus, in spite of himself, was yawning. He had had a particularly long and tiring day. So King Alcinous, the exemplar of appropriate hospitality, had stood up and declared that it was time to bring a feasting to a close. The stranger required sleep, he required a good bed, and as King Alcinous declared, in the morning, following the stranger's sleep, then we will all put our heads together and formulate a plan to assist the stranger in making his way safely back home. And so, over the next 15 minutes or so, the great hall gradually emptied out. All the nobility who did not live there packed up their bags and headed for home. And soon, ladies and gentlemen, it was only Odysseus, Alcinous, and Queen Ariete left sitting alone in the great hall by the fireplace. And that's when something nearly disastrous happened. The queen, Ariete, the perceptive queen, looked up and noticed the shirt and the cloak that the stranger sitting at her table, was wearing. And immediately, ladies and gentlemen, 
poor Queen Ariete, a queen, but mostly a mother, incorrectly connected to the dots and feared for the worst. Ariete knew that the last time she had seen that particular shirt and cloak had been on her eldest son. And only this morning, that shirt and cloak had been transported by the daughter, Nausicaa, down to the seashore for laundering. And now, here some hours later, well, there was no sign of Nausicaa, and this strange man who had entered their hall was wearing the cloak and the shirt which Nausicaa had taken to do the laundry. Queen Ariete connected the dots, and the implications were all too shattering and clear. So summoning her courage, she addressed the stranger. Stranger, how did you come by these clothes? I thought you said that you had arrived here with nothing, following a shipwreck. And fortunately, folks, Odysseus was still alert enough and awake enough to recognize what Ariete was fearing and how the poor queen had incorrectly connected the dots. So Odysseus wasted no time, and what he did in a hurry was recount the truth of what had happened, that he had arrived, that he had stumbled across the laundry party, and that he had requested Xenia from Nausicaa, the queen's daughter. Well, immediately, Queen Ariete had exhaled. Her daughter was safe, and Odysseus, deciding to help poor Nausicaa out a little bit, had judiciously heaped some serious praise onto the girl. Here's what he said to the mum. One would not think a girl so young as her would have had so much good sense. Young people are not usually so thoughtful. But she was so kind to me. She gave me food and wine. She had her slaves wash me in the river, and she let me have these delightful clothes. But, ladies and gentlemen, though the parents were now relieved, Nausicaa was going to pay the price for having put her mum and dad through such unnecessary fear. King Alcinous spoke. Just one of the things that my daughter did was not correct. She should have brought you here to us herself, since she, after all, was the first person that had asked you for hospitality. And, of course, King Alcinous was correct. Nausicaa should have brought Odysseus directly to the palace and personally introduced the stranger guest to her parents herself. And that raises, well, for us, the question of why Nausicaa wasn't there now when she had the opportunity. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm just guessing here, but my instinct suggests that Nausicaa likely did not trust herself to act appropriately calm and disinterested in the stranger if he was in the room and her parents were watching her. Nausicaa realized that she might blush or stumble on her usually sure-footed words, and mum and dad would realize that Nausicaa had had more than just Xenia conversations with the man standing in front of them. 
And so the girl had decided that her best strategy was to stay clear of mum and dad and of the stranger for a little while, at least until her heart had quit beating quite so furiously fast. But in not bringing the stranger to the king and queen, she had technically violated the protocols of Xenia. But Odysseus decided that there was no way he was going to let the clever, precocious, and absolutely delightful young thing take the fall after all the wonderful things that she had done for him. And so Odysseus stepped up to the plate, and in defense of the daughter, Odysseus tactfully lied to the parents. Here's what he said. Your daughter is quite wonderful, great king, and please do not blame her for the lapse. She did indeed tell me to follow her with her slaves, but I refused. I was too embarrassed to come, and, well, I was also afraid that you might take offense if you saw your daughter and me, a stranger, together. You know how suspicious some folks can be. And, ladies and gentlemen, Odysseus's diplomatic lie had worked possibly even better than he had anticipated. King Alcinous sat for a moment, thinking, then realized that he was duly impressed, charmed, and, well, actually absolutely delighted by this eloquent, sophisticated, and still, of course, deifically gilded stranger standing in front of him now. So the king, on impulse, spoke. By all of the gods, what a congenial man you are. I wish that you would stay here and marry my own daughter. You would be my son. I would give you a home. I would give you wealth. I will give you everything if you would like to stay. And if not, well, then I do give you my word. You can go home tomorrow. But now, guest, you are tired. Get up. Your bed is ready. And Homer reports the following. Queen Ariete ordered her slaves to set up a bed in the colonnade and to pile it with fine purple rugs and blankets and with wool-lined cloaks. The slaves quickly went out of the room with torches, and when they had finished preparing the bed, they returned to the hall and said to Odysseus, Come, sir, your bed is ready. And the thought of sleep was delicious to him. And that, folks, is where we will leave Odysseus for now, heading off to bed after a very long and a very, very, very busy day. A day that included, for Odysseus's consideration as he slept, an offer of marriage. Actually, an offer of marriage made twice. First by the prospective bride-to-be, and next, and more significantly inside of this culture, by the bride-to-be's father, an exceedingly wealthy and exceedingly generous king. So there was, for our questing hero, quite a few possibilities to consider during his dreams. 
So folks, in upcoming episode number 11 of Odyssey the Podcast, we will carry on with the second half of the story of Odysseus's remarkable time on the island of the Phaeacians. And in the meantime, on to a bit of a teaser about the post-story commentary to follow. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm going to do in the post-story commentary to follow is to take a bit of a sneak peek ahead, if you will, to a rather interesting story that Odysseus is going to tell to his Phaeacian hosts after his good night's sleep. And once we hear that story told, we are going to have to revisit the question of really how much Odysseus is, in Homer's own words, the Lord and the master of lies. The post-story commentary, I promise you, is going to be a lot of fun. So I would invite you to refill your coffee cups or to pour the favorite libation of your choice and settle in for the post-story commentary. So welcome back, folks, to the post-story commentary. Now, I told you what we were going to do in this post-story commentary was leap ahead just a little wee bit until tomorrow morning, after our hero Odysseus has completed his really good and well-earned night's sleep. Now, just an aside, you don't need to worry. I'm not going to provide any significant plot spoilers here that are going to destroy the fun of the upcoming podcast. So here's what I can tell you. At some stage tomorrow morning... Odysseus is going to have to reveal his identity to his Phaeacian hosts. And of course, the reason why he has to do that is that he has been provided with absolutely flawless Xenia, and one of the quid pro quos of Xenia, if you will, is that once you've been given all those wonderful things in exchange, you are expected at some stage in your visit to announce to your host who you really are and what your business is in town. So that's going to happen tomorrow. Now, the moment that Odysseus tells his Phaeacian hosts who he is, well, they're going to have some serious questions. All they know about him so far is what he told them about Calypso's island, that he had spent some time on the island and then had been in a terrible shipwreck and then had been washed up in the shore and discovered by the princess Nausicaa. But the moment Odysseus turns to his Phaeacian hosts and said, My name is Odysseus. Well, they are just going to overwhelm Odysseus with questions because, of course, the Phaeacians have already heard all about the famous Trojan War. And just to point a context here, folks, that war wrapped up ten long years ago. So the Phaeacians are going to turn to Odysseus and say, Yes, we've heard of you. We know about your famous wooden horse. But, well, dude, what have you been up to for the last decade? We just assumed that while you were back in Ithaca with your family, everybody else's home, tell us a story. And ladies and gentlemen, all then that Odysseus will have to decide is whether to say, Nah, I'm not really much of a storyteller, don't like the stage, don't like to talk about myself. Or on the other hand, whether Odysseus will say, So you want me to tell a story? And a story about myself, no less? Okay, let's begin right now. 
And of course, then Odysseus is going to gather the Phaeacians into the Great Hall, dim the candlelight, if that's even technically possible, step onto the stage, and when everybody is assembled, Odysseus is going to launch into his story. And ladies and gentlemen, we already know the story that Odysseus is going to tell his Phaeacian hosts. And why do we know that story? Well, because we have heard it already in episodes 1 through 6 of Odyssey the Podcast or in books 9 through 12 of Homer's The Odyssey. And it is, of course, the story of Odysseus's travels, sometimes by scholars referred to as Odysseus's Great Wanderings. And it covers the moment from when Odysseus set sail from Troy, 12 ships, 600 men, until a moment about three years later, when the last of Odysseus's crew drown at the sea, courtesy of the vengeful sun god Helios. So we know the story. And the topic of this particular post-story commentary is Jeff's quick little exploration of Odysseus's great wanderings story to his Phaeacian hosts. So, a little wee bit about that story that we don't know, and we certainly wouldn't know it from listening to Odyssey the podcast. If you leap right over to your copy of Homer's Odyssey right now, and you open up book number nine, where Odysseus's story to the Phaeacians begins, you're going to notice something interesting. Odysseus begins telling his story in first-person narrative. And then, for the next four full books of Homer's Odyssey, not once does a third-party omniscient narrator step in to break the plot or give us any context or backstory at all. It is four straight, uninterrupted books of Odysseus telling his very own story from only his very own perspective. Now, most estimates are that it would have taken Odysseus exactly four hours of live performance time standing in front of that Phaeacian audience to actually complete his entire narrative of his great wanderings. And if you're kind of looking for some point of comparison there, folks, I just took a few moments now, went back and did the math on my telling of the great wanderings inside of Odyssey, the podcast. And once I removed my cultural and social and historical digressions from the story, and of course, once I removed the post-story commentary time, when I crunched out the numbers, my telling of the great wanderings to you in Jeff's third-person omniscient voice took me four hours and ten minutes. So, almost identical to what it took Odysseus to tell the story to the Phaeacians. Now, according to Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus told the entire freaking story in one sitting. Now, at about the halfway point, it's really funny if you read the great wanderings inside of the Odyssey, Odysseus actually breaks, turns to his Phaeacian hosts and says, well, I'm getting really tired and you folks are likely getting bored of hearing the story, so maybe I should just stop here. We don't really need to go on. And of course, Odysseus knows that he already has the Phaeacians eaten quite literally out of his hands, and he's just being playful at this stage. The entire Phaeacian royal court begs and implores Odysseus to, please carry on, the night is young, we want to hear more. And somehow Odysseus, the great storyteller that he is, manages to pull off a four-hour, 
first-person narrative tour de force. Now, one of the interesting things about this story that Homeric scholars and geeks like me really, really, really like to talk about is the question of how Homer manages as the author in writing this first-person flashback section of the Odyssey. The question is how Homer manages to maintain only Odysseus's first-person perspective during the entire four-hour Great Wanderings account. It would have been very easy for Homer, the author, to accidentally slip up and have Odysseus at some stage in his story tell his Phaeacian audience, or we readers by extension, something that Odysseus really could not have known. Now, folks, there's actually a really fun example of this inside of Book 12 of Homer's Odyssey, where on first blush, it looks as though Homer, the author, is about to screw up. And it's such a famous little example among, well, we Homeric geeks that I'm going to take a moment and share it with you now. So here's what happens. During this particular scene, Odysseus in first-person narration, imagine he's standing in front of the Phaeacians as he's telling it, tells the story of how his crew butcher and then barbecue the cattle of the sun god Helios. Of course, Odysseus explains, well, he is conveniently sound asleep on the other side of the island. But in the middle of Odysseus's narration of this butchering and barbecuing scene, Odysseus in first person accounts the following. I'll quote. Meanwhile, up on Mount Olympus, the enraged sun god called out to the other gods, Father Zeus, I beg you to take vengeance on the comrades of Odysseus. And of course, folks, there's absolutely no way that Odysseus, sound asleep down on the island of the sun god Helios, could have possibly known about a dialogue happening way up in Mount Olympus at the very same time. So if you're reading the Odyssey for the first time and you're reading it carefully, or possibly if you were a member of the Phaeacian live show that Odysseus was delivering, well, at that point, you kind of go, ha ha, caught you, Homer, or ha ha, caught you, Odysseus. How could you know what was happening on Olympus? You just told us you were sleeping down here on Earth. But then, without so much as missing a beat, Odysseus carries on with his first-person narration almost as if he anticipated our objection and then decided to answer it. I'll quote, All this that happened on Olympus I later learned from the goddess Calypso, who told me that she had heard it herself from Hermes when he had come to visit her on her island. And of course, folks, if we get into questions in the Odyssey of stories within stories and the points of view of author versus the points of view of character created by author, well, then this entire conversation could become, depending on your point of view, either annoyingly or delightfully meta. So let's just leave it with this. The Great Wanderings is a four-hour, first-person, tour de force of action and adventure storytelling by Homer, or by our boy Odysseus. You choose at this point just how meta you want to be about the entire thing. 
So that covers, if you will, the structure of the Great Wandering section of the Odyssey. Let's move on now to some of the content inside of Odysseus's Great Wanderings narrative. And I want to raise a question of how that Great Wandering story is perceived by we 21st century listeners. And folks, I'm going to kind of allude back now to that playful court-martial of Odysseus post-story commentary that I did some episodes earlier. And my question, and a question that shows up from people who read this or listen to this great wandering story is, why on earth would Odysseus have set out to tell a story, a story about what he has been up to for the past 10 years, to an audience who has no way of fact-checking the veracity of that story, and then launch into a story which is essentially a narrative of how he managed to lose 12 ships and all 600 members of his own crew. And of course, folks, well, the way that we do it is by accepting that we are listening to a story. And our primary goal as listeners to a story is to be entertained. So if the storyteller introduces monsters, temptations, and epic journeys to the land of the dead, and, well, a few red-shirt expendable cast members have to die in the process of our entertainment, well, we're willing to accept that as the necessary quid pro quo of a really, really, really good adventure yarn. And my suspicion is that the Phaeacians sitting there in their great hall that night, likely to a certain degree, treated Odysseus's great wanderings narrative the very same way. And did some of the more sophisticated members of that audience on occasion roll their eyes, smile, and nudge and wink a little bit when Odysseus got into some of the particularly tall sections of his tale? Well, they might have, just like we would too. The point was, they were there for a great time, and Odysseus, up on the stage, well, he was providing it to them. But there is one entirely different response to why the Phaeacians might not have been remotely upset by Odysseus's loss of all of those ships and of those 600 men. And it's a reason that really wouldn't quite occur to us in the same sort of serious way. Ladies and gentlemen, there is the possibility that the Phaeacians took Polythemus the Cyclops's curse very, very seriously indeed. So once Odysseus had explained early in his great wanderings that he had been cursed by the Cyclops and that the god Poseidon had agreed to honor that curse, well then the Phaeacians simply accepted as a matter of course that Odysseus was now fated or doomed or destined to lose all of his ships and all of his men. The god Poseidon was real and you did not mess with him. So listen again to the curse. Here's what Polythemus requested of his father Poseidon. If it is fated that he see his family, then let him get there late, and with no honor, in wretched condition, and on a foreign ship, and having caused the death of all of his men. And then may he find trouble lurking for him in his very own home. So, 
That was the wording of the curse. And if you were a gods-believing Phaiakian, well, then when you heard that curse, you knew that poor Odysseus, from the moment he started on his great wanderings, was essentially up against it, and there was nothing he could do, no matter how hard he strove to avoid the inevitable loss of all of those men and all of those ships. So it likely didn't even occur to the Phaiakians to consider blaming Odysseus for any form of negligent military leadership. So, that nicely covers the content of Odysseus's speech. Now let's move on to Odysseus's motivation for telling that four-hour-long story. And folks, here are the things that we need to consider. First off, Odysseus at this moment is penniless, shipless, and entirely impoverished. In fact, as he's standing on the Phaiakian stage, even the shirt he is wearing and the cloak around his shoulders are borrowed. Everything that he obtained at Troy during the Trojan War, well, it has all been sunk long ago to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Next off, Odysseus, as he stands in front of his Phaiakian audience, knows two things about them. First of all, they are stupidly stinking rich. And next, they are exceedingly well-cultured and artistically sophisticated. And so, with those facts in mind, Odysseus's current lack of pennies and a Phaiakian audience with gold to spare, while Odysseus, the polytropous, mercenary, and always self-interested man, while Odysseus recognized a golden opportunity to accomplish two specific things. First off, well, he could use that story to cement his reputation, his personal chaos and glory. And why tonight? Well, because as Odysseus stood in front of the Phaiakians, he recognized that sitting front row in that audience, there was a professional storyteller, a man named Demodocus, was in the house. And so Odysseus recognized that if he got up and he told his story about his great wanderings, well, Demodocus, the professional storyteller, would be listening hard and taking mental notes. And the reason why, of course, is that in the Bronze Age, storytellers were, like storytellers today, always looking for incredibly interesting and new materials. The world already knew, and Demodocus was already on tour singing stories about Odysseus's famous wooden horse. But if Odysseus on stage could provide Demodocus with another four freaking hours of Odysseus stories to tell, well, it was our boy Odysseus's best chance of going viral in the Bronze Age. Now, I told you that Odysseus saw two opportunities when he stepped on stage in front of that Phaikian audience. So the first, of course, was to cement his reputation, his chaos, and his glory. But opportunity number two, ladies and gentlemen, was much more mercenary and practical. Opportunity number two was to milk that Phaiakian audience for as many pieces of gold as he could possibly wring out of their big, tender, warm, and loving hearts. So how do you do that? Well, you do it the way that professional storytellers have been doing it for centuries. You pull 
on your audience's heartstrings. You make them laugh, you make them cheer, but most of all, you make them choke up, pull out their handkerchiefs, and maybe even weep a little bit. And at the center of your story, you make sure that you include lots and lots and lots of hearth and home and family and all those things which cause audiences to dig really, really deep. And folks, you get the idea. There is no debate that The Great Wanderings is a tour de force of entertaining storytelling. But for our boy Odysseus, our clever, calculated, and shamelessly mercenary boy Odysseus, The Great Wanderings is also an infomercial. You can almost hear the infomercial narrator's voice softly but earnestly appealing to the Phaiakian listeners in the audience that night. And you can help to bring Odysseus home and to restore all that cruel fate and the gods have taken from this man. Fellow Phaiakians, your donations will make a real difference in this hero's life. Call the number on your screen now. Operators are standing by. And for your donation of just one gold coin, less than the purchase price of a single field slave, you can help send this desperate hero on his way home to his wife, to his son, and to his grateful kingdom. Donate now. Operators are standing by. And folks, that leads us quite nicely into our final conversation on Odysseus's story to the Phaiakians. For centuries, since the Odyssey was first published, in fact, readers have wondered, did the great wanderings, as described by Odysseus, ever even happen? Or, on the other hand, did Odysseus, the consummate liar and bullshit specialist, simply make the entire thing up in order to impress and to financially milk his Phaiakian hosts? So, how do you get to the bottom of a question like this? And it turns out that the most reliable process is to follow that same method of inquiry that we would follow in any criminal trial or judicial inquiry. Do not trust the word of the suspect. Assume that the suspect is going to lie. Instead, go looking for corroborating third-party sources as your evidence one way or the other. And ladies and gentlemen, if we apply that standard of inquiry to the great wanderings, here is what we find. There are precisely two incidents of corroborating third-party omniscient narrator evidence that backs up Odysseus's great wanderings story. So here they are. First off, Inside of Homer's opening lines, where Homer invokes the muse to help him tell the story, we have that line that we already know quite well. It is Homer's indictment of Odysseus's foolish crew. And here's what Homer says. I quote, 
the poor fools, they ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from their homecoming. And the next evidence we have? Well, that happens when Homer brings us in on the council of the gods scene up on Mount Olympus. The scene where they're trying to decide what to do about Odysseus and how to get him off of Calypso's island. And during that scene, Zeus has a conversation with Athena and states the following. I quote, Poseidon holds a grudge against Odysseus. Poseidon hates Odysseus for blinding the eye of Polythemus. So there you have it, folks. We have omniscient verification of an event very, very early in Odysseus's great wandering story. And then we have third-party omniscient narrator corroboration of an event that happens at the very, very end of the great wandering story. So I will leave it for you to make up your mind on whether you believe any or all of the events in between did or did not happen. But I will venture a personal opinion. I would suggest that if we are willing to suspend our disbelief and accept that there was a cyclops and also accept that there are immortal cows who continue to moo and crawl around the ground even after they have been killed and cooked, then it seems a little bit precious on our part to not also accept the credibility of sirens, of magical bags of wind, and of six-headed monsters. So for me, I'm going to believe that Odysseus was telling us nothing but the full and unvarnished truth. And of course, that's also a perfect place for me to leave things now. But I can report one additional happy fact. Folks, from this point forward in our story, both Homer's Odyssey and Jeff's Odyssey, the podcast project, well, both of those will follow an identical chronology and plot structure. So, in upcoming episode number 11, we will carry on with Odysseus's visit to the land of the Phaeacians. And folks, I promise you, episode 11 is an episode chock full of stories. Wild, entertaining, controversial, and in one case even deliciously salacious stories. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. So have yourselves awesome days, and bye for now.